Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in today's lesson, Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 13. I have chosen to entitle this section some high-powered exhortations or some miscellaneous high-powered exhortations because these are very serious exhortations. They're not really related to one another, and so they're sort of miscellaneous. The whole chapter 13 is about exhortations. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, in the first part of chapter 12, the author exhorted the Hebrew Christians to not grow weary, to keep running the race, to be disciplined, to endure because of all the persecution they were suffering. And then at the end of chapter 12, he says, if you keep enduring, you will inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we start now in Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Well, that's a simple exhortation. Brotherly love. The author here is referring to love between Christians at this point, not love for the whole world. Brotherly love. Love for Christians is a different kind of love than you have for the average person in the world. You do love them because you don't want to see them die in their sins. And, of course, you have non-Christian friends and non-Christian relatives that you love naturally. But this is talking about supernatural love, brotherly love. 2 Peter 1.7, Peter mentions this, godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. He's saying that all these good things go together and, and godliness and love are good things. And godliness and love are to be accompanied with brotherly affection, affection for one another. And, of course, that, is, that includes sisters for sisters, brothers for sisters, and sisters for brothers. The author here says, let this brotherly love continue, which shows that it is possible for brotherly love to grow cold between Christians. That can happen because sometimes Christians can be a royal pain in the rear because of their flesh. The church at Ephesus mentioned in Revelation, they had abandoned their first love of the love they had for the brethren. Revelation 2.4, but I have this against you, church at Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. They had become cold doesn't say whether that's a love for Jesus. It's probably love for each other. Here's some examples of how you can continue in love for your brethren. Brethren, This is from Steve Ackerson and John Gill. You can show them loyalty, hospitality. You can help them when they're in need. You can gather together with them and encourage them. You can always be there for them. You can pray for them. You can forgive them. You can admonish one another in love. You can build each other up. You can stir one another up to loving good works. Let it continue. We should never, ever forget that. When you hang around Christians long enough and you listen to their prayer requests and to their lives and and you learn their lives and their struggles, you will automatically love them. You can't help it because the Spirit of Christ in you is causing you to love them. And that includes people who are not very lovable, actually. We go now to Hebrews 13, 2. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. All right, this is another miscellaneous exhortation. The first one was was to show brotherly love. The second one here is to show hospitality. Don't neglect to show it. Now, there's an obvious fear of letting strangers into your house. I mean, they can rob your silver. I wonder in USA culture today, in American culture, can we make such a direct application of this? How many scumbags walking around can you trust to invite in your house? Well... I must say this, I'm sure in the Old Testament times they had letters of introduction and, the, and people's reputation sort of helped people decide whether they should take them in or not. So I'm sure that back then, just as today, they trusted but verified. So we need to do the same thing. Hospitality was especially important in ancient times because there were so few inns available. And many of the inns that were available were full of big bugs and prostitutes. Now the connection with verse 1 is this. 
verse 1, he says, continue to show brotherly love. And here's in verse 2 is a specific example of that, show hospitality. The author in verse 2 says that by doing this, by showing hospitality, some have welcomed angels. He's not referring to Hebrew Christians have welcomed angels welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. He's referring to Old Testament examples. I'm going to give you three in the story of Abraham in Genesis 18 when three men appeared to Abraham and told Abraham he was to have a son. They were angels. Abraham didn't know it. He got Sarah to fix him a meal, if you remember. He welcomed them as guests without knowing that they were angels. How about Gideon in Judges 6? Judges 6, 21 through 22 says this, the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, probably, the angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. That was Jesus, I'm sure. And, and Gideon fed him a meal, fed Jesus a meal, the angel who was Jesus fed him a meal, meat and unleavened bread. And Gideon didn't know that he was showing hospitality to the Son of God. How about Manoah in Judges 13? Manoah is Samson's father. Judges 13, 16, the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, said to him, when I say that's Jesus, most everybody says that, that it's not a slam dunk. Some people disagree, but I'm, I'm assuming it's Jesus. The angel of the Lord said to him, if I stay, I won't eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know who he was, the angel of the Lord. He, he entertained him not knowing. Good examples for the Hebrew Christians to show hospitality. I can imagine, you know, if you showed hospitality to a Christian Jew, the non-believing Jews would say, Oh, look at you, showing favor to these, these persecuted heretics. And that would be a problem. And the author saying, don't let the shame the stigma of being a Christian keep you from showing hospitality to them because they especially need hospitality. Continuing in Hebrews 13, verse 3, the author says this, Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Now, remember means more than just to have fond memories of. For example, remember me in your will. That doesn't mean just to have a fond memory of me as you shuffle off your mortal coil. It means, give me something out of your estate. And so when the author says, remember the prisoners, he's saying, act on the knowledge that they're in prison and go visit them and give them food and help them. Christians were prisoners in the early days as they are today. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. You sympathized with the prisoners. The author is saying continue to do that. Remember them. What did Jesus say about prisoners? Matthew 25, 35-40. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, etc., etc., etc.? When did we see you in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So you're visiting a Christian in jail. You are visiting Jesus himself. It's not only prisoners in jail that the author exhorts to remember. 
but also people who were mistreated and suffering bodily. It sounds like people were actually being tortured or beaten for their faith. As Jesus predicted, I think it was in Matthew 10, leading up, he's referring to the Jews after he died. They were going to persecute the Christians from synagogue to synagogue, and they were doing it. Remember these brothers as if you were suffering bodily, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12:26. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member of the body suffers, all the members suffer with that suffering body. The church of Christ, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So we need to identify with people who suffer and suffer with them. Hebrews 13:4, marriage must be respected by all. Here's another miscellaneous exhortation. Marriage must be respected by all, verse 4, Hebrews 13. And the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. How may the marriage bed not be respected? By shacking up with somebody, fornicating. You ain't respecting the marriage bed, because you ain't married when you're doing it. Or thinking like live divorce, yeah, my wife, you know, I got tired of her, traded her in for two twenties. Divorce ain't no big deal, yeah, the kids will get over it. That's not respecting the marriage bed. And, of course, just plain old adultery. That's not respecting the marriage bed. That's defiling the marriage bed. I mean, marriage is serious business, and the Bible considers it serious. And this casual attitude toward sex, which is everywhere today in today's culture, is one of the hallmarks of an anti-Christian culture and society. Christians can show their difference from the world by staying married to the same wife or the same husband for until death do them part. How may marriage be respected? Husbands love, wives submit, and children obey. That's Hebrews 5 and 6. Evidently, there was a problem with sexual immorality with the Hebrews. It was mentioned once earlier. Kind of strange because it's in the middle of a bunch of exhortations against legalism and apostasy. And all of a sudden, in Hebrews 12, 16, it makes sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau. And, of course, we don't even know that Esau was immoral. Jewish tradition may, may have said he was immoral. But at any rate, there's an exhortation against it. Be sexually pure, Hebrews, because God will judge immoral people. Will he? Oh, yes, sir. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, dot, 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 adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, dot, 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 will inherit God's kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean if a Christian commits sexual immorality and repents, as in, what is it, 1 Corinthians 5, with the guy who was living with his living with his father's wife. He later repented, as, as we read in 2 Corinthians, and he came back. And so, of course, he's going to inherit the kingdom of God. This is talking about people who do this stuff with no repentance, covering them. Hebrews 13, 5, your life should be free from the love of money. Ah, oh, we go from sex and money. I used to tell my kids, I used to tell everybody, if you can handle two things in your life, money and the opposite sex, or that's when I wanted to be polite, but if, if I was around people I could be a little, bit, a little bit more blunt with, I would say, you can handle money and you can handle sex. You can handle those two things, you'll be 99% cured of all the problems that you'll face in this life. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the reason he said he's never leave you or forsake you is in the context of money. If you run short of money, he's not going to leave you in the lurch. He'll get you the money you need to survive. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you in the area of money. Now, the scripture has a lot to say about the love of money. Now, again, it's the love of money. It's not money itself. There's absolutely nothing wrong with money. You have to have money to live. Even the poorest person needs money. Everybody needs money. There's nothing wrong with money, but it's the love of money. Luke 12:15. he then told them, Jesus, watch out and be on guard against all greed. 
because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Ask Jeffrey Epstein. Ask Ghislaine Maxwell. Luke 12:21. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Not good. Philippians 4:10 through 13. This is Paul speaking. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. Kenneth Copeland. Benny Hinn, are you listening to that? You know how to have a little? I doubt Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn would know how to live with a little. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, Paul, who had no source of income and had very little money, he was always supplied when he needed So... God didn't leave him. God didn't forsake him. God gave him everything he needed. So Paul didn't need to love money. He didn't need to focus on money. Mark seven twenty one through 23. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed. From within, people have greed. Dot, 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 dot. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. You got greed in you, it will make you dirty. Ephesians 5, 5. For no one recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure, impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah, in the kingdom of Christ. You greedy, you loving money, you ain't loving Jesus, and you ain't going to be sitting in his kingdom when it's all over. Matthew 6:24. No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. Take your choice. First Chronicles 29:14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, from God, and we have given you, given you the Father, only what comes from your hand. So whenever we give from something, it's something we've been given first. Well, that's easier, easily stated. The scripture is very clear, but ooh, putting it in practice when you don't have any money. Being without money is a scary thing. I've been there for years. When I was first married, that's when most people don't have money, is when they first married, have a wife and kids, can't support them. Oh my gosh, that's a tough time. And that's when you need to learn to focus on Jesus to provide what you need to feed your family. Notice that in verse 5, the author says, be satisfied with what you have. Now, I don't care how much money you have, you can always have more. All these rich people, they, they keep score against themselves. I have a billion dollars. You only have 500 million, that kind of nonsense. And they got to have more and more and more. Not, not, all, not all wealthy people like that. A lot, of it, a lot of wealthy people like to give a lot of it away. You know, philanthropy, and I'm all in favor of that. That's great. I would think that would show that they're satisfied with what they have. But if you're constantly wanting to make more and more and more, you're in love with money, and it's slavery. Be satisfied with what you have. The author, remember, is writing to people who are having their property confiscated. So it was a hard sell, a hard exhortation. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. Well, let's just do first 34. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Don't love money because they're stealing it from you. Boy, that's tough. I remember I got stolen out of 70 R&B in China by this crooked small store repair guy. It was a cell phone that didn't work. 70 R&B, that's about, what, $10. It took me two years to get over that. I was so mad at that guy. I never went back into the store and I'd think about it every day. But, you know, I knew that was a bad attitude. And it wasn't the money, actually. It was the fact that I'd gotten robbed. I mean, $10 is not the end of the world. 
but we need to be satisfied with what we've got. And that includes when people steal from you, as was, was, was happening to these Hebrew Christians. It would be very easy to want money in their circumstance. And that's probably the reason the author exhorts against loving money. He exhorts them to not love money because they might be tempted to go back to Judaism to save their property. Now, the author in verse 5, Hebrews 13, says, Be satisfied with what you have. Here's a good scripture about being satisfied with the money you have. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Paul is writing Timothy. But godliness with contentment, be satisfied, is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. I was just talking to a young 28-year-old Chinese woman who's locked down in China. Her fiancé can't fly into the country. She can't fly out because of the COVID-19 mess. And she teaches English, and a lot of the English schools are losing students, and so her salary keeps being cut. And she says, I've got just enough to pay my rent and to buy food. And that, I immediately thought of this verse. I said, yeah, you have food and clothing, just like the Apostle Paul, nothing else. And she got so excited about that, she actually went and looked the verse up. Be content with what you got, folks. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, Paul continues to exhort Timothy. They fall into a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of the same. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I'm telling you, if you want to read some of the saddest stories in your life or watch the biographies of rich capitalists who don't love God, oh my God. Gosh, what a horrible, what horrible lives they live. You want to see? How about Jeffrey Epstein? He was rich as he could be. He was a pedophile. Read his life. Oh my gosh, such pain, such horror, such family destruction as people fight over money. It's a terrible. It's worse than being on drugs. Don't fall for it, folks. Don't fall for the love of money. First Timothy six seventeen through nineteen. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Now, there, of course, Paul does not ask the people that were rich, the Christians that were rich, to give all their money away. He didn't say that, but he said, don't be arrogant because you've got a lot of money. There's a lot of rich people that are humble. Most of them are Christian. They're humble. Sam Walton was humble. He was multimillionaire. He deserved to be. He invented Walmart. But they say he wore just the ordinary clothes. He kept going to his little... I think it was a Baptist church, you know, with just the old common folks that he'd been going to all his life. Let these who are rich not set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Uncertainty, I like that. Uncertainty of wealth, because boy, it can go just as fast as it comes. Ask anybody who's had money and lost it. There's a famous Roman god, and I, it's a minor god, and I can't remember his name to save my neck. I got a mental block about it, and I can't find him on the internet, but he was a god, this god of wealth, who would come at you walking with crutches and limping and could barely move as he shuffled along on his stick. And then when he got even with you, and then as he passed you, you turn to look at his back and he sprouts wings and flies away. (laughs) So the pagan Romans knew about the uncertainty of wealth. So Paul continues with Timothy in verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, set your hope on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. God will give you everything you need. That's Sermon on the Mount stuff. Instruct those who are rich in the present age to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. 
You need to give money. If you got money, you need to give it. I'm not saying 10%. I don't know what the percentage is. That's Old Testament. God loves a cheerful giver. Exodus 20:17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. His, well, let's forget his wife, of course, but his possessions. Don't covet them. Don't want them. Yeah, somebody's got a bigger house than you. Okay, fine. Let them enjoy it. The way to be free from the love of money is to be satisfied with what one has. To whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. As Steve Atkinson so eloquently puts it, let me repeat, verse 5, Hebrews 13, be satisfied with what you have. Now the author in verse 5 says, for he, God himself, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Where has God said that? What scriptures? Well, in Joshua 1, 5, we read this. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. So that was referring to Joshua conquering the promised land from all the Canaanites. God says, I will not leave you or forsake you when you do this. First Chronicles 28:20. 20. Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. There's that phrase again. Until all the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. So there, God will not leave or forsake Solomon as he builds God's temple. Now let's focus one more on one more word in verse 5 of Hebrews 13. He, God himself, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What does never mean? It means he will always take care of you. Always. With no exceptions. Hebrews 13:6. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What's the therefore, therefore? Because God will never leave us or forsake us, as he just said in verse 5, because he'll never leave us or forsake us. We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. He's going to take care of me. I'm not going to be afraid because he's not going to leave me or forsake me. What can man do to me? Because God's not going to leave me or forsake me. The Lord is my helper. That's a quote from Psalms 54.4. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. Now, this reference that the author of, of Hebrews makes in verse 6, what can man do to me? Remember, he's writing to people who are being robbed and thrown into jail by persecutors. And so he's saying, look, yeah, they're robbing you. They're throwing you in jail, but what can they do to you? Nothing, because the Lord is your helper. He will never leave you and never forsake you. So therefore, don't go running back to Judaism. Hang tough in Christianity and endure the persecution. All right, moving on now to Hebrews thirteen seven. the Author continues, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Now here's some scripture concerning the Hebrews leaders. Hebrews 2, 3. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And of course, those who had heard Jesus originally were the original apostles and they had passed it on to the Hebrews. Those who had heard him. Hebrews 5.12, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation. Again, you need milk, not solid food. So the author wants the Hebrew Christian to have leaders, and he wants them to remember their leaders. Now, that past tense there, remember your leaders who have spoken. The NIV Study Bible says that probably indicates they were dead already. I don't believe that, but that's what they say. Jameson Fawcett and Brown agrees. It says the aorist tense, have spoken, shows that the leaders are probably dead already. Remember your leaders in the past who have spoken God's word to you. 
Steve Atkinson suggested these leaders were those who had led the Hebrew leaders in the past and they've moved on. And you need to fondly remember them and imitate their faith. Well, if that's so, then remember doesn't have its usual meaning of remember in the sense of think about somebody so you can do something for them because you can't do something for somebody that's dead or moved on. I don't really think that's what it means. I think it means be mindful of the leaders who have spoken God's word to you in the past and they're still around, so listen to them. They're still hanging on. They still are not apostatizing. Carefully, carefully observe the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Now, this idea of imitating other Christians, it's amazing. It's everywhere in the scriptures. It's not mentioned too much. If I've never heard a sermon on it or an exhortation on it or a little video blurb, a YouTube blurb on it, but it's everywhere, Hebrews 6.12, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. 1 Corinthians 4.16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God. Well, they're, they're imitating God, not people. I probably shouldn't have used that one, that verse there. 1 Thessalonians 1.6-7, and you became imitators of us, us apostles, and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus. 3 John 1 verse 11, Dear friend, let me back up. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, How did they become imitators of God's churches? Since you have also suffered the same things from the people of your own country just as they did from the Jews. Mentioning the very same persecution we're talking about here, probably, the Jewish persecutions. Be imitators of God's churches. 3 John chapter 1 verse 11, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. In other words, imitate what is good. Here's what Aristotle said about imitating good men. Excuse me for, for quoting a pagan. Quote, we believe good men were more fully and more readily than... We believe good men more fully and more readily than others. This is true generally, whatever the question is, and absolutely true where exact certainty is impossible and opinions are divided. His character may also be called the most effective means of persuasion he possesses. Character. Now, oftentimes we say, well, we shouldn't pay attention to the speaker. If Adolf Hitler comes into the room and he says 2 plus 2 equals 4, we've got to believe him. But it's hard, isn't it? When somebody's a jerk, you don't want to believe them. That's just human nature. So, if you've got leaders with good character, and they should be, then it's easier to follow them. And that's good, because then you're following them into something good. Now, I know in strict logic that's not true. There's the old ad vericundum fallacy, the appeal to authority. You say it's true because so-and-so is a wonderful person, and that's not logically true. But we're not dealing with strict logic here. We're dealing with average Christians who are persuaded by the character of the people they imitate. And it's all through the scriptures. Now, let's look at how this verse has been abused by ecclesiastical authorities. Verse 7 of chapter 13 of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. Remember your leaders. The King James has a most unfortunate translation, which goes like this. Remember them which have the rule over you. Now, when you talk about people having the rule over you in modern English, what we think of is somebody like a king, somebody like the boss at work, somebody who does have statutory legal authority over you to tell you what to do. Now, this is beyond the scope of this audio, but I can guarantee you I can make a 99.99% case that that is not the true of church leaders. Church leaders do not have that kind of positional authority. They only have moral authority, the ability to lead and ask other people to imitate them and to follow them. 
That's why we see imitations show up so much in the scriptures. So how do we deal with the King James translations? Well, first of all, we notice that most translations don't have those who rule over you. Most have leaders or a form thereof. The Holman Christian Study Bible, the Montgomery New Testament, the New American Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the Weymouth Translation, Young's Literal Translation, Darby's Translation, God's Word Translation. All of them have leaders, and the King James doesn't, so they're wrong, or at least they're misleading, I should say. The word there, them that have the rule over you, mostly translated leaders, but not by the King James, the Greek word is hegumenon, which is the present middle passive participle, genitive plural masculine, which is remember them who were leading you or who are leading you. Hmm, that's present. That's not aorist. I don't know how in the world these other commentators said that, oh, the spoken, have spoken is in, is the aorist. The leaders is a participle, so it's it's a it's it's used like an adjective. So them that have the ruler over you, those that are ruling you, or those that are leading you, actually is the way it should read. Now, of course, that word hegumenon is has two. It, it has a broad range of semantic meaning. If you look it up in Thayer's, it can mean those who lead, as in lead by example. It also has the the meaning of ruling, as in those who have control authority. The word is. It's broad enough to cover both concepts. But notice that when we go to Luke 22, 25 through 27, and we see the classic statement by Jesus about leaders, listen to what Jesus says. And by the way, when we hit the word leads in this passage, it's the same Greek word as used in Hebrews 13, 7 by the King James. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles dominate them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it must not be like that among you. You know, we're from the government. We're here to help you. That kind of thing. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you must become like the youngest. And whoever leads, or as the King James would put it probably, whoever has the rule over you. I don't know how the King James does put it, but that's if they were consistent, they would translate it the same way as they do in Hebrews 13, 7. Whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Is it, it at the one at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. So Jesus tells us that he's a servant. He wants us to lead like servant. He wants us to follow his example. And it's the same Greek word for leads. Hegumenos, present, middle, passive, participle. It's a different grammatical form. It's the nominative singular masculine instead of, instead of the, um, the genitive plural masculine. But it's the same Greek word. In Hebrews 13, 7, it's hegumenon. And in Luke 22, 26, it's hegumenos. Same word. So it makes sense that the... Hebrews 13.7 use of the word is remember those who guide you. And as a fact, as a matter of fact, that's how Adam Clark translates it. He says, remember your guides, tone hegumenon, your guides, your leaders, those who show you the way to go. They don't tell you the way to go. They show you. Guides don't even have gentle management control. I follow a guide because I want to, not because I have to. We'll take that up in the next audio when we hit some other verses in Hebrews 13 are used by ecclesiastical popes, Protestant popes who run their little dictatorships in churches and appeal to these verses and say, oh, baby, because I'm your leader. Oh, it sounds like I'm against authority. I'm not against authority. I, I believe in imitating leaders who are godly, godly leaders. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're exhorted to do that. So I'm not against authority, but I'm against control authority. Now, these church leaders have played a prominent role in stopping the Judaizing heresy. And so since they had in this chapter, the author of the book is going to emphasize the leaders because they had stopped that Judaizing heresy. 
their teaching was opposite to those who the author is about to mention, those who taught about strange foods and legalism. In other words, they were fighting the legalists legalist in the church who were encouraging apostasy among the Hebrew Christians. We go to verse 8 in Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that verse is quoted all the time. It's quoted out of context and probably not surprisingly because it's kind of hard to figure out how it fits into the context here. Here's some options. The NIV Study Bible suggests that what the author is saying is that the substance of the leader's faith that the Hebrew Christians were told to imitate, the substance of that faith, was the unchanging nature of Christ. So follow your leaders because they are following Christ and Jesus doesn't change. Steve Atkinson suggests that the author is referring to the fact that the false teachers were changing the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and I think that's a better solution than the NIV Study Bible. Jesus Christ is the same. These false teachers are not the same. They're changing the faith once delivered from Jesus to the apostles to the Hebrew Christians. When is yesterday? Well, some options on that. The NIV Study Bible says it's the days of Christ's early existence when eyewitnesses observed him. For example, in Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the way it was beginning and it hadn't changed since then. Or John Gill suggests that Jesus is the same as he was in Old Testament times as he is today. Well, I mean, you know, what difference does it make? Jesus is the same since eternity past when he, when he was living forever with, Jesus, with uh, God the Father. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change. We go now to Hebrews 13, verse 9. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods, since those involved in them have not benefited. I like how the author puts the proposition in a way that it makes the, his opponents look ridiculous. Are you telling me that what you eat is going to strengthen your heart? It's going to be good for your heart. What you eat is good for your stomach, maybe, but not for your heart. Is that going to help you be established by grace? And again, the, the grace is the opposite of law, which is what the Hebrew Christians are being inundated with. Since those involved in them, involved in the foods, have not been benefited, no. They might enjoy the food. They might not enjoy the food, but it ain't helping them one bit spiritually. The author says, don't be led astray. These are the false teachers he's referring to, urging the Hebrews to go back under them. We think of Paul in writing to the Ephesians full and to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Now, if you've ever dealt with false teachers, and I think every Christian sooner or later is going to, they are always so clever. I always say they're so smart, they outsmart themselves because they're going to hell, or they're wrecking their faith if they're not going to hell. Human cunning, Paul says. Yeah, they're cunning. They're smart. Usually... Heretics are really, really smart intellectually. Don't be led astray by these people, the author says. Now, what foods were these teachers teaching the Hebrew Christians to eat or to not eat? The NIV Study Bible and John Gill says it's the Jewish dietary laws. But Steve Atkinson speculates that it was dietary restrictions that were extrapolated from the Mosaic Law, but which, but which went beyond the Mosaic Law. The strange word strange would seem to indicate this, strange foods. Strange teachings, excuse me. Don't lead, be led aside by strange teachings. The typical Jewish dietary laws wouldn't be too strange to the Hebrews. They were used to that. So this is probably some heretics on steroids, legalists on steroids. They're going more than Moses. They're going into probably, who would, who, I wouldn't be surprised into Christian, into uh, Gnosticism, that kind of stuff, or extreme asceticism pushed by Pharisees, which are not in the Bible, but if, but which, but who preached things that have been added to the law of Moses. We go down to verse 10, Hebrews 13. 
We have an altar from those who serve the we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. Now, I'm going to give you three options for what that altar is that we have, or that the Hebrew Christians had. The cross is the first option. The NMI Study Bible suggests that. John Gill denies it. Jameson Fursett Brown affirms it. He says probably, though. He affirms it with probably that's the cross. We have an altar because an altar is where the priest put a animal, an animal sacrifice on. And the cross is where Jesus' sacrifice was put. And so our altar is the cross and those Old Testament priests who serve the tabernacle. They don't have a right to eat at that altar, which is a metaphor for saying they don't have a right to participate in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because they don't believe in him. Now, that makes sense to me. But here's option number two. The altar is the Lord's table at the Lord's Supper. John Gill denies that. But here's the argument. The bread and the wine are on the table, even as Jesus' body and blood were on the cross. And, of course, those who serve the tabernacle, the, legal, the Jewish legalistic priest, they don't have a right to eat at the Lord's Supper. They don't believe in Jesus. But we Hebrew Christians do. Well, that's reasonable, even though John Gill denies it. Now, the third option is Christ himself. John Gill affirms this option. Adam Clark affirms it, too. Christ is an altar because he is a refuge for his people, even as the bronze altar was a refuge for sinners. You remember, if a sinner could go to the altar and grab the horns and, and you couldn't judicially execute him, or the, the avenger of blood couldn't come get him and kill him there. Here's what Adam Clark says. The altar is here put for the sacrifice on the altar. The Christian altar is the Christian sacrifice, which is Christ Jesus, Christ himself. He's the altar because he is the place of refuge, like the bronze altar was a place of refuge. Well, two of my three basic commentators agree with that, but I really think it's the cross, as the NIV Study Bible says, and Jameson Fawcett Brown say, because that's where the sacrifice was put in the New Testament. That's where Jesus' body was put, on that cross. And that is used, so altar, in my opinion, is used metaphorically for the cross, although, of course, I'm not 100% sure of that. But the point is, is we got Jesus and the Old Testament priest in the temple, and they don't have the priest. He calls it the tabernacle. I'm, I guess he's talking a little bit unchronologically here, out, out of time sequence, because it wasn't the tabernacle that was in existence then. It was the temple. But I guess what he meant is those who served the tabernacle when the tabernacle was still in existence before the temple. At any rate, whatever it is, is these Jewish priests don't have the right to share in Christ. Now, let's look at the ritual in the, in the Levitical laws to see why the priest didn't have the right to eat of this sacrifice. Let's take the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Now, this doesn't mention the Day of Atonement in Hebrews 13.10, but let's just start there. The NIV Study Bible mentions that priests could not eat of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. They don't have a right to eat of the sacrifice. They generally could eat of certain sacrifices, for example, in some cases the sin offering, in some cases the peace offering, but not on the Day of, of Atonement. Remember on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he offered a bull for himself and a goat for the people as a sin offering. So let's look at the scripture, Leviticus 16:27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering. The bull for the high priest's sin and the goat for the sins of the people. Whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement. It was brought in there and they sprinkled it on the mercy seat on top of the ark. The bull and the goat must be brought outside the camp and their hide flesh and dung burned up. So you see the hide and the flesh, the priest didn't have a right to eat because it was burned up for that sin offering. But our sin offering with Jesus, we can eat of him metaphorically 
as the NIV Study Bible puts out, we can partake of our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. New Covenant Christians can do that through spiritual reception of Christ by faith. John 6, 48-58, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man of the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and is not like the manna your fathers ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus gives that extended metaphor about eating him, eating his flesh, which is, of course, metaphorically the bread of life, so his flesh is gives life. And so you, so you have to eat it. When you eat something, it becomes part of you. You make Jesus a part of you, and you have metaphorically eaten his flesh. Well, Old Testament priests can't do that. The Old Testament priest can not only eat of Jesus' flesh, he couldn't eat of the flesh of the sin offering in the Old Testament. Hebrews 13:11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. We just read that in Leviticus 16:27. The bodies, of course, be a body of the bull for the high priest and the body of the goat, which is offered as a sin offering for the people. Now, I mentioned about animals on the Day of Atonement. Let's look at uh, animals for sin offering, generally just a, a, a normal sin offering. Not for the high priest, not on the Day of Atonement, for a sin offering on another ordinary day. Leviticus 4.12, all the rest of the bull he must bring to a ceremonially clean place outside the camp to the ash heap and must burn it on a wood fire. It is to be burned at the ash heap. Well, that's outside too. Now, I mentioned in Leviticus 4.12, the rest of the bull. That's the rest of the bull that hasn't been eaten. Leviticus 6, 25 and 26 shows that the priest on an ordinary, in an ordinary, doing, doing an ordinary sin offering could eat that sin offering. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is the law of the sin offering. This is Leviticus 6, 25 through 26. The sin offering is most holy and must be slaughtered before the Lord at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. That's on the bronze altar. The priest who offers it as a sin offering is to eat it. It must be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. So, an ordinary Sin offering could be eaten by the priest. The rest, then, after the flesh was eaten, was taken outside and burnt. But I don't think the author's talking about a normal sin offering. He's talking about the big sin offering on the Day of Atonement. Those animals had to be completely burnt up outside the camp because they had borne sin, metaphorically speaking. And as a result, they were dirty, nasty, evil, and defiled. And so you take it outside the camp to get the sin outside of the, the congregation of the saints. So let me read Leviticus 16:27 again to drive the porn home. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering. This is on the Day of Atonement now, the once a year deal. Who's the Day of Atonement, of course. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. He had to carry blood or he'd be struck dead. And if anybody besides the high priest went in there, it went in there, they were struck dead. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering. Bull for the high priest, goat for the people. Whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement. Sprinkled on the altar. Sprinkled on the mercy seat. That bull and that goat must be brought outside the camp and their hide, flesh, could, couldn't eat the flesh, and dung burned up. Everything about that animal is burned up. And, of course, there's a point for all this. Remember, he's talking to Hebrews who understood this Levitical system a lot better than I do. Hebrews 13:12. Therefore, Jesus also suffered where? Outside the gate. 
just like the sin offering on the Day of Atonement was burned up outside the gate. I imagine that dead animal was suffering. If he was alive, he could feel it. He was suffering outside the gate. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Remember, he was crucified on Golgotha outside of the city. That's where they crucified criminals. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. He sheds his blood. He takes his blood up into the heavenly holy of holies. God looks at it and says, okay, life has been given for all the capital crimes committed by humanity. Therefore, I will expunge those crimes from anybody, anybody's record who's willing to receive that sacrifice and accept it as covering his sin. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, Jesus' death outside of Jerusalem represented the removal of sin, even as the removal of bodies of the sin offering represented the removal of sin. And again, I'll repeat this verse in Leviticus 17:27: The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be brought outside the camp, and their hide flesh and waste burned. So Jesus is outside the camp, just like the sin offering on the Day of Atonement was burned outside the camp. Because the, the idea, the, the topology is very clear. We want this sin to be taken away from the people. So the people might be holy and the sin taken care of. And in fact, it says Jesus' suffering in verse 12 of Hebrews 13 is so that he might sanctify the people. And of course, sanctify means to make holy. It's a synonym, really, of holy. To make, it's the verb form of to make holy. To holify, if we had such an English word. To holify us, to sanctify us. Now notice something interesting here. We always say, oh, I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know, we always talk about justification being taken care of by the blood of Jesus. But here the verse says also that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. So Jesus makes us holy by his blood as well as justifies us. You know, we separate out the different operations of the Holy Spirit or the different operations of Jesus in the ordo salutis, if you will, so that we can, just for pedagogical purposes mainly, so we can understand what happens at what stage, and that's fine. But it's all part of the same process. We've got to put it all back together in reality, because justification, sanctification, and glorification are all part of the same process. Now, I said that Jesus being suffered, being taken outside the gate to be crucified, is a symbol of him removing sin from the people. That's the NIV Study Bible's take on it. However, there are some other options. The removal of Jesus outside to be crucified outside the gate could show that Jesus is outside the Old Testament order and therefore he rejects it. Here's Adam Clark who holds to that view. Perhaps all this was typical of the abolition of the Jewish sacrifices and the termination of the whole Levitical system of worship. He left the city, denounced its final destruction, and abandoned it to its fate and suffered without the gate to bring the Gentiles to God. That's nice. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think it's the removal of sin, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Third option, it could represent the ostracism of Jesus, just like the Hebrew Christians were being ostracized. He had to suffer outside the gate. That means he was not part of the people anymore. The people had rejected him, and he was a miserable criminal outside of the city that should have proclaimed him as Messiah. Now, verse 13 tends to back that up. Because in verse 13, the author says, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. So that's why he's outside the camp, because he has been ostracized. I think that's a pretty good option, too, to be honest with you. Let's see if we can put them all together. Maybe his death outside of Jerusalem represented the removal of sin from the people of God. Option one, maybe it also represented the rejection of the Old Testament order, because the Old Testament order is kaputsky. Now we have the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly holy of holies, not the temple's holy of holies. And the third option is maybe it represents the ostracism of Jesus who was forced to go outside the people of Jerusalem because he's despised, just like Hebrew Christians are being despised 
by the Jewish legal order. Could be all three of those. I'll leave that for your discretion. We go to verse 13. We'll finish up this section. Hebrews 13, 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Oh, no. Whatever whatever verse 12 meant about why Jesus suffered outside the gate and mentioned by the author of the book of Hebrews, verse 13 makes it clear that we go to Jesus outside the camp where he was suffering in order to bear his disgrace. And what the author is saying here is, is, listen, if Jesus can undergo the horrible disgrace that he did, and if he can despise that shame, if he can not care about that shame that he went through, maybe you Hebrew Christians who are thinking about going back to the into the arms of those who killed Jesus, maybe you might think that it might be worthwhile to bear his disgrace with him. He bore it. Why don't you bear it? Go to him outside the camp, outside the camp of the Jews who are sacrificing all those animals and who are breathing fire and brimstone at the Jewish Christians and persecuting them from house to house and taking their property and putting them in jail. Maybe you should put up with that. Go outside the camp and bear his disgrace. Jesus is our example. Do what he did. Going and leaving the Old Testament order, going outside the camp, that's a disgrace, all right, but look, if you stay inside the camp, what happens? You're going to be destroyed in eighty seventy before one generation passed from eighty thirty when Jesus gave that warning in the Olivet Discourse, so maybe you should bear his disgrace so that you don't get destroyed. What's what's worse? Getting burned up in a fire or or being ostracized a little bit. Why does the author call Jerusalem, the Old Testament system of Jerusalem, a camp? Well, he's referring back to in the Old Testament times when they were still in the wilderness. They had to camp as they traveled, and so the camp was, was the Old Testament order. And it was very, there were very strict rules as to how that camp was laid out, which family had to be here and which tribe had to be there. Read the book of Numbers, you'll see all that. And so the camp used to be orthodox, used to be straight according to what, the way God had put it. But now the camp had become heretical. Revelation 3.9, take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. And that's what's happened here at Jesus' time, at the Hebrews' time, in Hebrews in the 8060s. They have become, metaphorically speaking, a synagogue of Satan. They were a kingdom of Satan. They killed Jesus and they killed the prophets and they're about to get judged for it. They claim to be Jews, but they're not, because real Jews are those who believe in God the Father, and these Jews did not believe in God the Father. And real Jews are actually those who believe in Jesus, as according to Galatians 3 and Romans 4. Children of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus. Well, in Revelation 3, verse 9, which was also written in the 60s, by the way, according to the early date view, which I hold, these people in the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, note this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. That's what's going to happen to the synagogue of Satan. I forgot which church. Let's see what church that was written to. That was the letter to Philadelphia. There was a synagogue of Satan there. It's, that was probably just a regular Jewish synagogue that the author John says, yeah, they belong to Satan because they're persecuting you. They're persecuting the children of God. Well, just like they're going to go down, just like God's going to make them come down, or Jesus is going to make that synagogue of Satan bow down at the feet of the Philadelphians. Likewise, in the case of the Hebrew Christians, Jesus is going to make them bow down. How? By destroying their city, which was predicted in all three Gospels, all and four Gospels if you count the book of Revelation, take an orthodox preterist view of that which I do. That means these Jews are going down. Now let's leave with one application. The author of Hebrews says that we should bear that they, the Hebrew Christians, should bear Jesus' disgrace. Folks, that hadn't changed. The world today treats Christians with 
total disrespect. And I'm talking about current day America. When I was growing up, it wasn't that way. If you're a Christian, we had the phrase, a good Christian man means he was moral and ethical and all that. He loved God. He was pious. And that was considered a good thing. Not anymore, folks. If you're in the academic world where where I was, you're laughed at. You believe stupid things like evolution is stupid, which it is stupid. It's the stupidest philosophy that's ever come down the pike. But it's believed religiously and fanatically by people in the academy. I remember one time I ran into a Jewish guy who was not a practicing Jew and he was not a Christian. He asked me one time, do you believe evolution is true? And I, that's the first time I'd ever been confronted. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. I'm going to be a the doomcoff of the college. They're going to start laughing at me now. But I told him, no, I don't believe in evolution. I try to say it with a lot of confidence, you know. And this Jewish guy, he says, I don't believe it either. I could not believe it. He was a chemistry professor in high school before he became an education professor. He was a libertarian Jew with strange political, unusual politics. And in fact, he predicted that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq before the first Iraq war. And I thought he was crazy. It turned out he was right. But at any rate, this man had studied the evidence about evolution and thought it was stupid, just like me. And he wasn't even a Christian. But anyway, most people in that academy will mock Christian professors. And now the press, the progressive secular antichrist left that runs Atlantic Magazine, New York Slime, the Washington Compost, the L.A. Leftover Times, all these idiotic left-wing papers, they will say anything bad about a Christian, and they'll say it. They hate homosexuals. That's the famous thing now. You know, oh, you hate homosexuals. Anything to make Christians look bad, they'll do it. Now, of course, present-day American church has given the Antichrist media a great chance to look bad. You know, I just saw a documentary the other day, yesterday on Netflix, that claimed that the name it and claim it, haul it and call it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, scream it and redeem it, Word of faith people are now the face of the American church, and it's being exported all over the world. And then when people hear Christianity, that's what they think. And I thought, dear God, I thought they were nut jobs in the charismatic movement six fifty years ago when I first heard about them. And I thought they'd died out by now. Apparently, they've just been growing like fungus. Those cretins have, have, have put the church of Jesus Christ in utter contempt. And also, they have put spiritual gifts, baptism of the Holy Spirit, in utter contempt, too, which is a shame, too, because I believe in that. Everything I believe has been trashed by these Cretans. So people rightly hold that in contempt, but they also hold normal Christians in contempt too. So it's not easy being a Christian today in today's America. But listen, think about those Jews, what they had to go through, those Hebrew Christians, the disgrace they had to put up with, a lot worse than even it is even here in America. And how about the Chinese communists, what they do to the church in China? I saw that firsthand. It was not pleasant. Ladies and gentlemen, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. All right, so we're finished with chapter with the first 13 verses of Hebrews 13. We saw lots of exhortations. They were miscellaneous. In fact, it started out with being an exhortation of verse. Let's go back and summarize that, if we will. In verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, show hospitality. Verse 3, remember prisoners in prison. Verse 4, be sexually moral and respect the marriage bed. Verse 5, be free from the love of money. That's verses 5 and 6. Verse 7, remember your leaders, respect your leaders, the leadership. Verse 9, be straight doctrinally. Don't be led astray by strange doctrines. And that more or less covers it. That's a lot of exhortations, powerful exhortations. In our next audio, we will finish the book of Hebrews and finish the chapter of chapter 13 of Hebrews as the author continues 
with miscellaneous exhortation. And there's a verse in here which you should pay attention to. It's what I call a good house church verse. In verse 24, the author says, Greet all your leaders. He's not reading, writing to the leaders. Now, you know, the way we do it today, we write to the pastor. No, sir, not back then. He wrote to the saints. And then he says, oh, by the way, say hi to your leaders. The leaders are not exactly the big shots, are they? We'll take that up in our next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>